Hello, this is Michael Melfi, and welcome to the Be Investable podcast. Since late 2015, I have had the opportunity to host a pair of amazing programs called The Trep Talk and Be Investable, both on the Michigan Business Network. I invite you to please enjoy some of my legacy content I was able to create while being a host on that network. What you are listening to are some of the engaging conversations I've had with entrepreneurs and with innovative individuals from across the United States and in fact the world. They took the time to share their insights about what it means to be investable. Today we have the honor of speaking with Mr. Jeff Hoffman, serial entrepreneur, experienced CEO, worldwide motivational speaker, board advisor, film and music producer, and author of an amazing book. And before we get into speaking with Jeff today, you probably have heard of one of his early endeavors that he was a co-founder of called Priceline. With that, I wanna welcome to the show, Mr. Jeff Hoffman. Okay, very good. First, I want to I start out and thank you for being on the show and joining us for the podcast. I think you've been on a, a whirlwind, literally around the world, and for us to be able to get a few minutes with you while you're, while you're back stateside in the Midwest, I thank you for your time and joining us on the show. Thank you very much for having me. And, and Jeff, as, as most people know, you know, founder of Priceline, I'm sure that's where, where most of the questions originally go. As you know, in our show, we like to talk a lot about what it means to be successful as an entrepreneur. And I guess I would like to start there. Back when you first got started, what really brought you to the idea of starting the whole Priceline? And how were you guys able to take that idea and really, really grow it? So uh, I think that's a great question. And uh, by the way, I'm a co-founder. There was a, a group of co-founders uh, that created Priceline. But the idea actually came out of an intellectual property company, which was called Walker Digital, which was a guy named Jay Walker. And what Jay did was we all got together with Jay to look at business models and especially to look at the intersection between technology and business models. What were things that you could do with technology, especially this newfangled thing called the Internet, um, to improve service industries that you never could before? So uh, the concept in this case uh, was the reverse auction, right? The way that Internet commerce works, certainly then, but really now, Internet commerce is very buyer-driven. So let me use an example, Michael, if you're buying shoes. You have to go find all the websites that sell shoes. Then you have to go see if any of those websites have the shoes you like. Then you have to see which ones have a good price. Then you have to see which ones have them in stock. Do they have the right color? Do they have the right size? How much is shipping? It's seller-driven. The buyer does all the work. So the original concept was of a reverse auction. Just tell us what you want and tell us how much money you have, and we'll go out and find it for you. So it's harvesting consumer demand was the idea. How many people have 50 bucks and want to buy a pair of $50 blue shoes? If we, if we aggregate all of those, then we can go out to the supply side and say, we have all these buyers who wants to sell to them. You're going to have to meet our price. So that's the business model that Priceline was based off. It wasn't set out to be a travel company per se. It was set out to be aggregating demand at a price point people wanted to pay. Name your own price. And let's see who wants to fill it. Um, that's how the model started. Got it. And, and you alluded to this, this kind of back then, usually referenced was the Internet, which was kind of this new piece that people were attempting to figure out. 
what about back then? Obviously, if we look today, and it's like, of course, the internet. Uh, you should be betting on the internet. Back then, that wasn't the mindset of a lot of the people. What What did you see, or what 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 was your mindset that made you think that you know what we, we can take that model you just described, utilizing the internet to really make something happen? Sure. So here was the battle that we talked about in the halls at Priceline every day. The battle was consumers. This is new, and they're not comfortable. I do not want to put credit card in the Internet and buy something from someone I've never seen and I don't know if they're real. Massive trust issues buying online because you used to always have to go to a store or talk to a travel agent in our case or some human that there was recourse to. So now the Internet, the first time you don't know who is on the other end. Uh, there was a famous cartoon at the time in USA Today or something. Uh, it was a dog typing away out of term on the Internet building a website and he turns over his shoulder and he says, on the Internet, nobody knows you're a dog. Um, and even though it was meant to be funny, it, it, it spelled out the fear that so many people have. Um, so here's what you had to balance. Yes, there is risk and yes, there is fear. But the benefit is so amazing. I'll go back to the Priceline case again. There's nowhere else that you're going to get a $239 hotel for 80 bucks. So the question was, what is the trade-off? What is the balance consumers have versus risk, savings versus risk? It's such a good deal that I'm willing to try it. That's the space that we had to live in. And we believe that even though the Internet was new and people were afraid of it, we believed that if the values were good enough, people would take a chance. And once they took a chance, if you could push them over that hump, and they found out that it really was a $200 hotel room for 80 bucks and everything went fine, then they'll start telling all their friends it really works. That's the gamble we were taking. Got it. And, and, and in fact, in back then, it, it took quite a probably bit of disruptive technology and a lot of growth hacking to really get people on board. Was there any one thing that you guys found was some of the success in the early traction around pipeline and getting users to feel comfortable with that? Yeah, well, you know, the, the other thing, I mean, you were absolutely right at that time, but the other thing was Internet marketing didn't exist. There wasn't social media. There wasn't really online advertising, so it was even harder because you had to use things like radio and print and television, uh, the old traditional methods, and they're risky and expensive. Uh, so it made it even harder to make uh, people feel that way. So a little bit of it. One piece I honestly think was the, back then, it was more effective, was the celebrity spokesman. That's part of the reason that the company chose Captain Kirk. Captain Kirk was a figure of authority that people trusted. He's the leader of the Starship Enterprise. He always saves the day. And I think part of that, uh, that feeling, a little bit of a feeling of security, was to have a well-respected celebrity spokesman that was a known captain and leader. I think that that helped a lot. And then the rest of it literally becomes the A-B testing of marketing words. I mean, you have to focus on what words you actually say in an ad and make sure that it, it feels and sounds familiar to offline retail so people say, well, this isn't as different as I thought. Uphill battle. Um, and then I would say that the next piece is once you get people that, you know, that take the leap and try this new online stuff and buy something and succeed, I think one of the things that benefited Priceline was putting effort into getting a happy customer to tell everybody else. Back then they called it the tell-a-friend ratio. How many friends does a successful buyer tell about your system? Because they're going to believe their friend way more than they're going to believe you. Uh, the Priceline marketing team at the time put a lot of effort into into nudging people to go tell all their friends how great it was.
And, and that was, it, it, it doesn't seem like a lot, it was before the social media was the way to do it. It was still, you were you were telling people verbally and email. So it, 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 it's hard to think that that didn't exist for some of our listeners. That was that was how we started out and where we started out with a lot of people. Yeah, you're right. There, there was no social media, so you had to tell them, hey, when you get home tonight, or when you get to work tomorrow, tell everybody what you paid for this hotel and tell them where. That's great. That's great. And, and I think, you know, you, you've had a very successful career and, and had multiple projects you've been involved with over the years. And there's, we hear about all your successes. And, and a lot of being successful is about learning from the unsuccessful, some of the failures and mistakes. Is there any one along the way that really stands out for you as a challenge that you had to overcome? Sure. It was the, uh, and I'm going to tell you the punchline now. The punchline is never be blinded by your own brilliance. There are so many people that have an idea, it's a good idea, and they just know in their soul it's a good idea, and they are convinced. So uh, anybody that says it's not just doesn't get it uh, because you're so sure you're right. And we made that mistake. We launched uh, a company very early on, way before the Priceline and stuff days, uh, where we had this idea that you could, uh, you don't need to go to the mall to buy a sweater, um, that you could... Uh, buy a sweater on your computer using this new thing called the internet. And what you and I were just talking about, people would say, well, I'm putting my credit card in. Is it safe? And we would say, sure, it's safe. We're using RSA 128-bit encryption. Who doesn't know that? I'll tell you who does know that, everyone that works at my company because they're all engineers. So we launched it, and it was definitely silence and crickets chirping. And housewives did not buy sweaters. So we got a hold of some and said, we saw you on the site. Why didn't you buy the sweater? And the housewife said, that was our target, said, she said, because I don't want to type my credit card in, someone will steal it. And we said, it's encrypted with RSA 128-bit encryption. And she said, can you say that again in English? <laughs> and we said, we said it in English. And she said, I don't know what you're talking about. And we said, how do you not know? Again, in parentheses, our arrogance was, how does anybody with a brain not know what encryption is? She said, look, you know, I can tell you every Dr. Seuss book in the library, I'm a stay-at-home mom, but I don't know what RSA encryption is, and I'm not going to do it. So the huge lesson was, again, if you are not exactly the customer you are selling to, your opinion does not count at all. We all thought it was a simple concept and everybody would get it. None of those people understood encryption. They didn't want an explanation. They just wanted us to leave them alone, and the company failed. I think it's a, it is definitely a great story. I love when you share that story. I think it's an absolutely great one. It is so well tells about that, that ability to understand and know your customer, and, and, and that, that question of what problem do you solve, and for who do you solve it for, right? And, and ultimately, why are you the one to solve it? So I, I think that's a great story. I, I love when you share that one. Thank you so, so much. Sure. You know, another, another question I have for you is, You've, you're a successful entrepreneur, a proven CEO, a worldwide motivational speaker. Some people don't know, a Hollywood film producer, a Grammy award-winning jazz album. You've also authored a book. You wear a ton of different hats. I'm not going to ask where you find the time to do that. It's more how, how have you been able to be successful in so many different areas and so many different verticals. Most people are able to succeed at one thing and do it really, really well, and they're known for that. Here you are doing it in so many different areas. Well, so I'll tell you a couple of things. First of all, um, I will answer that first question. The way you find the time to do a lot of things is by knowing when to quit, is by being able to check your ego at the door. And when something you start is failing, 
accept that it isn't going to work, even if you thought it was the greatest thing ever, and go do something else. So we didn't waste a lot of time when our ideas didn't work. We listened to the world when the world said, no, no thanks. And, and we cut our losses early. Some people spend years and years because they just won't give up. And if all the data, not, not your idea, the data in the world says it isn't working, move on. So that's a part of it. The other thing I want to say, though, is even though I've been involved in a lot of things, it's important to point out that every one of those was one at a time. Uh, when you're launching anything, being achieving excellence in any industry, in any product, any company is hard. But it's not five times harder to do it in five industries. It's five zillion. It's exponential, not linear. Um, so each of those things we did, we did one at a time and only one. When we were building, you know, when I was building Priceline, we didn't do a music company. When we were working on a music company, we weren't doing UBIT, our auction company. Each of these things we did. So for listeners, when you're doing one thing, tune everything else out until that thing is done. Uh, we stayed on it to get it done. But I think the real key... Uh, to why we were successful in more than one area is because we applied the principles of good entrepreneurship everywhere. When I first said I was going to launch a uh, movie company and we were going to go make movies, everybody said the same thing to me. They said, Jeff, you don't know anything about movies. You're an entrepreneur and an engineer. But here's the other thing they said, Michael. They said, by the way, don't do it because like 90-something percent of all independent films lose all their money and I said well geez maybe these things are related maybe you're telling me I shouldn't get into the business because I'm a businessman not an artist but then you're telling me artists lose all their money so what if we applied the techniques of good entrepreneurship of team building of planning of management of budgets and finance and marketing everything we ever learned in entrepreneurship apply it use the, the techniques that work in any business because a song's not really that different than a piece of code, right? There's, there's, you know, in one case I have developers, and the other ones I have musicians, but they're domain experts that build the product. In both cases, I have to know who wants this product. Who's going to listen to this song? Who's going to buy this software? How am I going to get it to them, distribute it? How am I going to market it and tell anyone it exists? So we applied the principles of good entrepreneurship in every industry we attacked, and it turned out that that was a... Uh, that was a very good discipline to have. Got it. And great, great advice. Putting quickly, focusing, and focusing on the principles of, of good entrepreneurship are, are great takeaways for our listeners. And, and you know, I alluded to the book you have. And if someone was going to, if someone was going to time this to pick up the book, although I, I recommend everyone picks up and read just books. What, what, what's someone going to learn if they read Scale, the how-to guide for growing your business? So I'll just pick one area as, as kind of the appetizer. Um, so many people, when Dave and I wrote that book, I wrote it with a, a, a co-author and business owner, David Finkel. When we wrote the book, the question that we both heard all the time is people would say, man, I'm stuck. I don't know why I'm not growing. I work twice as many hours a week as I used to, and I'm growing less. And the reason why is they've got stuck in this sort of inefficiency downward spiral. And the reason why is they are their own bottleneck. Um, people get themselves in the way of the business, and they think that working harder makes up for working smarter. So what the book teaches you is what to automate, what kind of measurement systems and dashboards to put in place and how to, how to put them in place, what kind of processes you need uh, to, to fill those dashboards to manage people um, and to set expectations. So we talk about, uh, you know, profit... 
we talk about processes and systems and operations and automation, and then we talk a lot about team building and delegation. You have to get out of your own way, and you have to let go if you want your business to grow. And those are hard things for most business owners to do. That's what we focused on in the book scale. Uh, it's, a, it's a great book. And for all of our readers, if you haven't read it, read it. We'll make sure to include a link. You should definitely pick up a copy. It's an amazing book. And, you know, speaking of growing businesses, most entrepreneurs, when you talk to them, they're concerned about their success, and they feel they need funding if they're going to create success. We've, we coined the term, and we told them, funding will come. You need to focus on being investable. And we teach a lot of talk a lot about what it takes to be investable. When, when you hear when you hear someone say the word be investable to you, what what does that mean to you or what does that represent to you? So I completely agree with you by the way, there's an overemphasis on funding for companies before they're ready for it. Most companies if we gave you the funding you'd just blow it anyway. At this point you wouldn't even use it wisely. Um, so we completely agree. So I think that means two things, and I'm really glad that you brought up that question about being investable. Um, you know, I have a sign in my office. Uh, everybody has a plan, uh, but and ideas and plans. The sign in my office says, ideas are welcome here, but execution is worshipped. And the reason why is what the difference between investable uh, and, and, you know, and, and just an idea at this point when you become ready is is that execution, that real go-to-market execution, day-to-day operational plan. We get it. When you just say, you know, and next year we're going to triple our revenues um, and we're going to sell this to 20 hospitals, making up an example, right? The execution plan. To sell 20 hospitals, you have to visit 60. How are you going to visit 60? Who's going to do it? How are they going to get those appointments? Where are they getting that data from? How long will each appointment take? If at the 20, what are they actually going to show them at each hospital? When they get there, what's the expected outcome? What's the sales and approval cycle? If a customer says yes, what does it actually take you now to install the product? It's the execution plan. And that's where people fail. And then the second part of that execution plan is talent. I always tell people uh, funding is not the most scarcest resource talent is. Human capital. So we need to believe that you have the right people in place with the right incentive schemes and the right design to set them up to succeed. Uh, because everything I just mentioned before about an execution plan is 100 dependent on the quality of the people executing it. So I would say those are the two things about being investable is having a detailed execution plan and having uh, talent in place that actually can execute it. Great, I, I love those. And you, you, I'm going to do a follow-up question to that. You had you had alluded to when they are ready for funding. How does how does an emerging company know when they're ready for funding? Is, is there some secret litmus test, or is it take, you know what 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 really defines that in your opinion? You know, I'm going to give you mine. So the bad news is there isn't a, a, a secret test because it's very investor dependent. Different investors are happy with companies at different stages. Some of them actually don't want you to be have everything together. They want a little chaos because they'll ask for a higher price because their risk is higher. And other ones are the opposite. They say, you've got to squeeze every drop of risk out of this before you ask me for money. So I think the first part of the answer to your question uh, is to really segment investors the way you segment customers. Really do a lot of research to find out each invest, each, any firm or investor you're going to talk to, find out their definition of investable. 
What criteria do they want? Because here's a mistake a lot of startups and, and entrepreneurs make. Um, when I say, what is an investor? They say, well, anyone that has money. Anyone that calls themselves an investor is an investor. That's like saying, who's a customer? Any human being on the planet. Actually, no. This is a product for teenage girls, right? If you sell pants for 12-year-old girls, you wouldn't tell me if I said, who's your customer? You wouldn't say anyone that wears pants. They only fit 12-year-olds, and they're for girls. So do investors the same way. Go through the process of studying them, researching them, segmenting them, and saying, this investor likes it this way, and i got to be ready for them. Makes, makes total sense. I love it. And, and my, my, last, my last question for you, and I really appreciate your time, is, is about, I read somewhere about your legacy challenge, and I'd love to ask you about that. Um, you asked two questions of people, and I, I'd like to ask you those questions if that's okay, and you'd like to hear your answers. Okay, go for it, sure. So the first question you asked if your funeral was today, how would you summarize you and your life? So I'm uh, just for the listener's sake, I'm going to explain why I, how that happened. I lost my best friend, unfortunately, who drowned. Um, and after that accident, his funeral, people were talking about him and his life. And I was sitting there saying, no, 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 that's not what he was about. That's not what he lived for. You guys don't understand. That wasn't Michael was his name. And so that's what caused me to say, whoa, wait, what if my funeral was today? And I challenge the listeners uh, to say that if your funeral was today, how would people describe you? How would they summarize your life? And if you don't like the answer, then you better write down how you wish they would describe you. So my concern is I would still have a lot of people that would say, Jeff was a good businessman. He understood business. He understood the art of the deal. He was a good entrepreneur. He knew how to build startups. I think people would talk a lot about my life as an entrepreneur and a builder of businesses, and that would be disappointing if that's all my life amounted to. And from what I know and what I've seen, I, I know you've done so much more, and, and I thank you for all your contributions. The, the second part of that question is, is, is that is what do you wish people would say about you the day you finally did that? Do, do you have yours, or do you know what you, you'd like them to say? I really, I really do. And, and it came, that came from a poster I saw one day. I was walking along, and I saw this poster, and the poster said this. It said, you may be successful, but will you matter? And I thought, wow, that really hit me, because the, the traditionally accepted definition of success is people that, you know, did well. They built a big business or career or made money or whatever. And all those measurements, when I started thinking about them, I thought, wow, uh, that's just, that, that is just success, uh, but that's not mattering. So my definition, I started thinking, my definition of, of mattering would be, and now I'll answer your question, would be at my funeral, instead of people walking by and saying, that guy built some impressive companies, I want people to walk by and say, Jeff personally had a positive impact on my life. So I don't want to be judged by the number of deals I did or dollars I made. I want to be judged by the number of other people's lives I made better. Therefore, that's what I want my funeral to look like, is people walking by and saying he had a positive impact on me in some way. If I can achieve that, then that will be my definition of success. That is awesome, and I can tell you, as someone who's had the pleasure of interacting with you on a few occasions, every time we talk, my life is a little bit better. I learn something every time, something new about you and something that allows me to grow. So I, I, I thank you personally, and I know a lot of the people out there who will be listening to this well, thank you for, for your time and everything you do bring to the community. So thank you for that. 
Well, thank you. I appreciate that very much. And 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 in closing, I, I have I always like to ask one last question, and and that is, if you could talk to your younger self and and, and give any piece of advice around entrepreneurship or having the right mindset or anything, what would you tell your younger self? It's this, uh, and I'll, I'll summarize that too, which is to get, today as human beings, we get our advice from proximity, not relevance. That is a lesson that I learned. So I was listening like all of us do. Who do you, when you have an idea, who do you talk to? Your wife, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your husband, your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your friends. You talk to the people in close proximity to you, uh, but their advice is, is, is not necessarily relevant. So I would tell my ideas to the people I live with, the people I'm around, and sometimes I get a false positive. Oh, son, your mom might say, oh, son, that's such a great idea. You're so smart. And, in fact, it's a dumb idea. She doesn't really know anything about it. Or the opposite. Somebody says, that idea makes no sense. And, in fact, it does make sense, but the people around you don't. I literally remember, Michael, one day my mom was giving me advice, and I suddenly thought to myself, hold it, Mom, you've built a total of how many Internet companies? Oh, yeah, zero. <laughs> so I learned to say, that's nice, Mom. That's nice, Mom, when, in fact, I wasn't listening to anything she was saying. And I went out in the world and said, i got to find someone who builds Internet companies, and if he thinks it's dumb, it's probably dumb. Uh, so that's the piece I would have said was to – to, you know, find advice from relevance, not proximity. It's a great piece of advice, and on that note, I, I want to thank you so much for your time and for joining us today, and I look forward to many more great conversations with you. Thank you very much. I want to thank you listeners for joining us today for this amazing interview with Mr. Jeff Hoffman. Thank you for taking a look back with me at some of the relevant conversations we've had over the past couple years across the entrepreneurial ecosystem and the investable world. As always, check out the Be Investable podcast's latest episodes here on iTunes. And also, look for some of my blog posts on the Michigan Business Network. 